Hi. Um, there's an article in The Guardian or The Observer um, on Sunday and still on The Guardian website written by Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer, Labour um, giant, uh, talking about the fact that, as the article headline says, many Scots don't want independence but a more cooperative union. And this, of course, is in the wake of the SNP's um, successes in the 2021 Hollywood elections. Uh, not quite winning a majority, but very nearly to within one seat of a majority. So Brown, who was a major figure in 2014, arguing in favour of the continuation of the, the union, uh, an argument um, that was successful in 2014, and an argument that's now looking more difficult to advance as more and more people seem to be drawn towards the, the SNP's message. So Brown has launched this new think tank and it's now become a campaigning organisation. And uh, he's published an article in the Herald today um, and in the, the Guardian Observer at the weekend, uh, trying to get people interested in his argument as to what needs to be done to prevent the UK falling apart. So I'll just run through the um, the argument and then have a look at what I think are the, the, the strengths and weaknesses. And of course, being that I'm no particular fan of Gordon Brown, I find it easy to see what I think are the weaknesses. I think that Brown and others were responsible for creating the situation they now would put themselves forward as being the, the physicians to solve. Um, and Dr. Heal thyself, I suppose, is the, the great principle I adhere to. Um, if uh, if Brown was as uh, insightful as he now would wish us to think, he wouldn't have put us in this position in the first place. It was he and Tony Blair that uh, produced the two big disasters um, of the last 20 years. The second disaster is one that I personally think will uh, will divide the country, but won't actually, in actual fact, harm the country. Brexit I voted for, um, but I think it's a disaster in the sense that it's caused the country to be divided into warring factions. And if it had been handled better in the first place, we wouldn't have had to leave the European Union. But that goes back to 2004 um, and the uh, the accession countries joining just as we had a changed our welfare state and a number of other changes that meant we would inevitably be the destination for large numbers of folk. But that's by the by. So Brown says that the, the present arrangements are not working. And I think most people would think there's something awry, there's something amiss in, the, in the, the British constitution, or at the very least in British political practice, because we seem to be constantly each other's throats. There's a danger that the UK could fall apart, or it might even be in the process of slowly falling apart. A bit of the Roman Empire, it takes a long time for it to finally reach the point where even the champions have to recognise that it is in the process of falling apart. So maybe historians will look back and they'll see that we were already falling apart. It certainly looks as if that we will, as Brown suggests, face trouble ahead. Nicola Sturgeon's intent in having a, an independence referendum of some sort. She says she'd only have one if it was a Section 30 order um, legalised referendum because that would be internationally recognised. But the SNP's position seems to be they'll pass a bill in the Hollywood Parliament making use of some of the powers that it has and then challenge the Westminster government to take it to the Supreme Court. Now, of course, as has been pointed out in the last couple of days, the Westminster government needs to do no such thing because anybody could do a Gina Miller and uh, and take it to the court of session or appeal it then on, depending on the result in the court of session. So the the strategy of the SNP to precipitate a crisis and a challenge by the Westminster government um, is flawed right from the get-go because Nicola Sturgeon doesn't want to do anything that isn't legal and her law officers will have to approve any bill that passes through Hollywood and that bill will necessarily therefore be so anodyne it amounts to an opinion poll and even if it went beyond what the lawyers thought was an opinion poll and might be the kind of thing susceptible to court challenge, it wouldn't be challenged by the Westminster government, it would be challenged by others. 
But either way, we've got a troubled future, as Gordon Brown says. Although he thinks that, as he, as he says, Scotland and the UK can function. Now, that's something that I'd like to revisit because I think there's a real serious problem in the way that people like Brown frame the issue and talking about Scotland and the UK as a part of that. So his new organisation, uh, Our Scottish Future, has commissioned an opinion poll and uh, his claim is that while the country might be divided very nearly evenly, say 55-45 as it was in 2014, in actual fact the broad middle is something quite different. So three quarters of the people polled want um, the Scottish uh, and UK governments to work better together. And Brown says that the decisive group are the 40% in the middle, uh, some of whom will identify as leave, uh, some of whom will identify as remain, if, or if you want to use pro-independence, uh, pro-union. But the, the group in the middle that is um, split on the independence issue is in actual fact more broadly united on the issue of better working relationships between the UK and Scotland. So he thinks this middle is key. And uh, the, pe the people in that middle, he thinks, identify themselves as Scottish. If you, if you make them choose, if you say, are you Scottish or are you British? If you frame it in just those terms, they'll say they're Scottish. They're more Scottish than British. But those are the terms that they themselves reject. So they don't want to be put in that position. They're patriots, but they're not nationalists. So they don't want to have to choose one over the other. Um, it's a forced choice, and if forced to make it, they'll say they're Scottish, but not British. But in actual fact... Um, they are really committed to a kind of political pragmatism and want the country to operate more efficiently and, and better than it is right now. So, what is Britishness? Or what is it that actually unites the whole country if you don't want to call it Britishness? And Brown says it's got nothing to do with ancient institutions or, you know, he doesn't mention empire or war or anything like that. But he says it's, it's not about the past, it's about the present um, or the recent past and the present. So he says the, the great British institution is the NHS. Nothing unites the British more. And it's interesting, of course, Danny Boyle, <laughs> Danny Boyle recognised that with the Olympic 2012 opening ceremony. He had the dancing nurses and the beds and the doctors. Because, of course, the NHS is the great British institution. Um, uh, I, as a Tory, of course, I'm accused, or a, a former Tory, uh, I'm accused of knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. Uh, and it's worth noting, uh, whatever our present economic difficulties, we were massively uh, more indebted at the end of the Second World War. We were 240% of GDP on a much smaller GDP. And we still created the welfare state and, uh, and the NHS. So the NHS is, is the great British totem. And that's the thing that uh, he thinks um, embodies our values. So the, the, the Brit Britishness is basically uh, a, a kind of um, community consensus uh, around the provision of certain things. Um, and that those things have to be provided in order to be a, a civilised state. So we, we could never, ever tolerate what, for example, the Americans tolerate. We could never tolerate the mar either market incentives nor paying at the point of use um, in our, our health provision. And similarly, we could never tolerate people being allowed to fall too far. So the welfare state is an absolute um, precondition for a, a communal life as well. So... The, the NHS is our, is our great institution that unites us in terms of our values. And he thinks that the COVID um, vaccine rollout might in actual fact provide an opportunity to symbolise to people what's possible uh, within a British context. Because the COVID vaccine rollout, of course, consisted of the UK government spending a fortune. And of course, just as an aside, it's interesting watching the EU um, refuse to spend early, refuse to gamble and then ask for a share of the winnings. 
talking about preventing the export of vaccines from the EU uh, and seizing them as if they weren't private property because the British had, uh, had piled a load of money into vaccine development and made orders in advance of knowing whether the things would work uh, and took a chance. A bit like the croupier in a casino uh, expecting a winner to put their hand in their pocket and give them some money but never thinking for one minute that they should compensate a loser for their losses. But, uh, but that's, a, that's an aside. So the COVID vaccine rollout uh, demonstrates how the whole of the UK can work together because the, the implementation, albeit, and of course, as a unionist, I'll have to note this with the British Army involved, but the, the vaccine rollout was Scottish, but the vaccine development and the money spent was UK um, or British. So that is, is the kind of um, imagination uh, that, that Brown would wish to uh, trigger, the kind, of, the kind of thoughts, because... This, this whole debate, I think he's right in suggesting this, he doesn't state it in express terms, but this whole debate is about feelings and about um, what, what triggers uh, in your mind when someone says British or Scottish. And the COVID vaccine rollout um, provides the opportunity for people to have uh, a different reflex response to someone saying, what, what do you think of when you think about Britain? Because of the UK, and of course the United Kingdom is Britain plus Northern Ireland, and I think the issue is that the Northern Irish seem to have accepted through the, the peace process and through the, the notion of a border poll, they've accepted a de facto different constitutional position. Not one that I might have been happy with, but nevertheless we are where we are. So sticking with 1707 and Britain, um, what is it that you think of when you think of Britain? And Brown suggests that the COVID vaccine rollout might provide an opportunity for people to think something different as, as a reflex when they think about Britain. So what, what then are we, are we left with when it comes to the, the, the leaders, the First Minister and the Prime Minister? And again, that's something that I'd, I'd challenge as a way of thinking about the issue. But anyway, Brown says Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson do not have a good relationship uh, and their behaviour doesn't contribute to uh, a, a good governance of the UK. But there's a reason for that in Sturgeon's case and there's a reason for that in Johnson's case. And Sturgeon has a good reason and Johnson has a bad one. Because Nicola Sturgeon is intent on breaking up the country and therefore she needs to have antagonism at the heart of her relationship. Johnson is supposed to be the Minister of the Union and he's the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So his job is to keep the place together. So while she can be um, understood, if not excused, for using every opportunity to try and break up the country, he cannot be exonerated for using bad strategy to keep the country together. And this leads on to the idea of muscular unionism. Um, Johnson thinks that the way to, and they had a, a kind of constitution unit or some kind of think tank in number 10 with various people slamming doors and storming out um, because they disagreed in strategy. But Michael Gove and others have been involved in trying to work out how to keep Scotland as part of the United Kingdom. And... Uh, the, the, the ideas have been various. Some have suggested love bombing Scotland and some have suggested so-called muscular unionism. And Brown chooses to construe the, the government's response as muscular unionism. So all this business about spending money um, over the heads of the Scottish government, going straight to the Scottish people and spending more and more directly without going through Holyrood and labelling it as a UK project and uh, putting union flags on it. And of course... Uh, Johnson saying something disobliging about devolution would be a complete disaster and a Zoom call when he had to have assumed it would leak uh, to the, he's not completely stupid, you know, so he must have known that that uh, off-the-cuff remark would leak. So all of that um, disparaging the Hollywood Parliament and suggesting that ND2 couldn't take place, a second independence referendum couldn't take place for maybe another 30 years, all of that muscular unionism um, 
Gordon Brown says he's just a terrible mistake. All it's going to do is excite further um, anger and indignation and support from nationalism. So the union can't survive endless conflict. It can't survive um, constant antagonism. You end up in a situation where people like me think that um, for all the worst reasons there should be Scottish independence. As I love as I to say to people, for at least a couple of minutes every day and recently for as much as two hours, I very much want Scottish independence just to see the look in people's faces. You know, you become so exasperated trying to get folk to take seriously the arguments that you actually think it would be a good thing for the Scots, looking at a, a sort of hundred year time frame. Um, it'd be better for the Scots to be independent now because the utter devastation that would take place for 60 years as we fought our way out of the, the consequences, as Ireland had to, and, and still hasn't in many ways. But um, we'd, be, we'd be a more virtuous people in a hundred years' time. N nobody alive today would see any benefit from Scottish independence, but the Scots who were alive in you know a uh, hundred years would be would be entirely different in terms of their uh, orientation to the world and to the facts we would rediscover the enlightenment we'd become a people of reason again rather than feelings but uh, so th the country can't survive this kind of endless antagonism um, and therefore you need to have a, a reconfiguration of the uk's future and that involves he thinks and i, I agree with him i uh, i've just spent money and time gaining next to no votes in glasgow by campaigning as an independent candidate in the regional elections in 2021 trying to get people to see that uh, the big problem in the UK um, wasn't one that could possibly have been solved by devolution. Devolution was a terrible mistake. The problem in the UK is the problem of uh, an electoral system which is guaranteed to give big majorities occasionally to radical governments that then antagonise um, the, the periphery. From Thatcher through uh, to Blair, um, we've had bad government on 30% of the electoral roll, and that needs to stop. So, as I say, I think I agree with him that we need a constitutional settlement. And as he says, it has to involve uh, not only the, the nations, but the, the regions, the north of England and so on. What used to be called the Red Wall before it turned blue, as we saw at the weekend. So this is all about uh, trying to examine the UK's future and establish a better relationship across the whole of the UK, not just between the, the constituent nations, but across the north of England as well. to make the, Essentially to make the whole constitutional settlement um, Seem less London-centric um, if you think it isn't right now, or be less London-centric if you think it is right now. But either way, to try and actually knit the country together uh, in a way that it seems not to be knit right now. You can argue it's not knit um, because there's inevitably going to be a gradient of economic prosperity across the country given the vast city-state that is Londinium. You know, because one of the things that needs to be pointed out is we would not be better off if London was poor. We would simply be more equal. Um, so the, the vast transfers that take place from London and the southeast across the whole of the rest of the country, not just with, to, to Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, but across the north of England as well, uh, that would not be better. The UK would not be in a better place if the transfers couldn't take place. So the, the country is not knit together, but it might be it's not knit together in terms of its prosperity because of an inevitable difference between uh, one of the world's great cities or city-states, Londinium, uh, and the rest of the country. Well, you can argue it could be better knit together um, and policy needs to change. But either way, there needs to be a change in sentiment or there needs to be a change in facts uh, to, to knit the country together. And uh, at the minute, as I say, we seem to be centripetal. We seem to be falling apart. So he says we need to have a better representation of the electorate's views. He places the apostrophe in electorates in a particular place that I'll talk about just in a second. But we need a better representation of the electorate's views. And we need a UK centre, a government that's more responsive um, to what he essentially 
campaigns as being the champions of the na of the nations and regions. And again, in a second, I'll, I'll start to pick this apart and say what I think's wrong with it. But it's just worth noting right now the view that he's taking. He's taking the view that the bits will have um, advocates, and then they'll make their case to a congenial avuncular central government that will do a better job at keeping the place together than currently it's doing. So there's going to be some kind of forum or um, or similar uh, place where the, the parts um, make their representations to the, the, the grand poobah at the centre, some kind of imperial, uh, imperial government is not the right expression, but something like that. Um, something that, the way he describes it, so he envisages something much more like a federal system, and a federal system where the top layer isn't just um, defence and foreign affairs, but it's far more re redistributive than that. So he's talking about a reconfiguration of the British constitution. And the reason he says this is because, like an old Labour guy, as he is, he doesn't see um, independence as the end in itself. At best, it would only ever be a means to an end. And uh, as he says in his article elsewhere in the, in the Herald, and on his website, actually, our Scotland's future is interesting because the, the strategy he takes on the, on the website is to say, let's have the facts. All parties can commit themselves to the facts and then we can decide what we want to do. And of course, the, the sly old dog knows that the reason the reason why it's so important to have the facts when it comes to the Scottish independence debate is because all of the facts favour uh, the union. Um, if, uh, if, you, if you actually think that an independent Scotland is about the Scots and about the, the, the interests of the Scots as people of the world who have got biological and other needs the same way as any other people. If you're the kind of person that simply wants to be independent, regardless of whether you have to uh, eat porridge in a hovel, then none of those arguments play. But as Brown says at the conclusion of his piece in The Guardian, the big problems we face are problems about, uh, about climate change and about poverty and so on. And these can only be addressed through um, a, a government that has got resources and, a, and an independent Scotland, Scottish government, although he doesn't say it, would have vastly fewer resources. So on, on the our Scotland's Future website, or Scottish Future website, he says, let's have the facts. And there's a reason why he does that, because you can't address the issues he thinks are key to the whole uh, antagonism between Scotland and England, uh, which are issues concerning poverty and inequality and unemployment. You can't address them unless you have uh, a, a government that can do things. And uh, a government that can do things across the whole of the UK, he thinks, is much more capable, more potent government than one that can only do them within Scotland. So that's the, uh, that's the gist of the article. Now, I think there are some fairly serious problems in this argument. And uh, the, the first obvious problem that jumps out is the classic philosophical problem of affirming the consequent. In other words, um, in philosophy uh, or in, in, in logic, if you say, if something's the case, something else is the case. So if A, then B. Uh, B is the case, and therefore A must be the case. So if, if it's raining, the streets will be wet. The streets are wet, therefore it must be raining. Of course, that's not true, uh, because there's lots of ways the streets could be wet. It's just that if it's raining, the streets will definitely be wet. That doesn't mean that the streets, if the streets are wet, then it was definitely raining because there's many other ways that the streets could be wet. Now, one of the things that Brown does is he accepts the SNP's argument that if Scots are unhappy, there must be something wrong with our political system. That doesn't follow. Um, the, as the great Hobbes says, the life of man is never without difficulty, um, and uh, it ceaseth, ceaseth only on death. 
Um, or he also adds there's no great harm befalls anyone except that stems from his own disobedience in a, in a decent state or a civilised state, a lawful state, a regular state. So, of course, there are some states that are just tyrannies. Um, Neil Oliver, the, the coast guy, um, said something. He said, I'm, I'm free right now. I'm at liberty right now. I, this, this idea of Scotland has to be free. Yeah, I'm free right now. There's nothing I, I need to be able to do that I can't do right now. So, Brown says the constitution is failing because people are unhappy. Well, that, that doesn't, it doesn't follow that people are failing, that are unhappy because the constitution is failing. Uh, one of the, the tremendous successes of the, uh, of the SNP has been to suggest that anything, um, regardless of whether it's educational failure or, you know, hospitals not opening um, or um, problems with COVID and vaccine rollout or anything else, every single thing that would anger you um, would not be the case were we independent. So independence is the WD-40 or the duct tape of politics. Once we're independent, then every single thing that irritates you, um, whether it's uh, you know the most routine thing in your life, like for example the uh, the state of the the roads, um, or the 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 uh, condition of the public parks or anything else, every single thing will improve um, once we're independent. And of course. As I always say, the great thing about um, nationalism, as opposed to um, socialism or state planning or anything else, is that you can only try it once. My pal was up for an interview as the purchasing manager in a nuclear power station, and uh, the interviewer asked him what the most important thing in a business decision was. And my pal gave a good answer, but the interviewer thought he had a better answer. The most important thing in a business decision is reversibility. Can you get out of it? And the thing about, um, for example, the Phillips curve and the belief that you can trade off inflation against unemployment. So if you tolerate more inflation, you get lower unemployment. The great thing is you can try that and you can have 26.8% inflation in Britain and high unemployment in the 1970s. And then you find out there's not a simple trade off. You can try um, industrial subsidies. You can give money from successful businesses to unsuccessful businesses and see whether that works. The genius of nationalism, of independence movement, is that it can only be done once. So it can never be seen to be a failed prospectus because you can never try it. Independence is like being pregnant. You can't be a little bit pregnant. So the, the Scottish nationalists are always able to say that things aren't perfect and things aren't perfect because we're not independent. So Gordon Brown says the, the union is failing because people aren't happy. Well, people aren't happy, but the, the suppressed premise in the argument that people aren't happy because the union is failing is because it is that the union could either not fail, it could be perfect, and life could be perfect under the union, or alternatively, life would be better or perfect under independence. And of course, all of that is false. Once you actually stop and explore what it is that people are saying, including saying by implication, people often say things that are based on something else being true and they haven't stated what it is, it's a, it's a suppressed premise. And one of the suppressed premises in the independence movement is that the UK um, does things which leave you unhappy or does things that make you unhappy and it needn't do those things. Um, or the independent government, uh, or the government of an independent Scotland would be able to do things that wouldn't uh, make you unhappy or could take away the, the causes of your unhappiness. And of course, if you stop and think about it, all of that is untrue. But the point being is people don't stop and think about it. So one of the things that Brown does is he accepts the SNP's condemnation of the Westminster government um, and that involves accepting their broad claim, which is that Britain is governed badly and Scotland would be governed well. Um, the fact that in an independent Scotland, we would have all the 
um, complaints about our NHS that the Irish have of their health service that they have to pay for. Um, the fact that we would have exactly the same um, annoyance uh, with industrial policy and people losing their jobs in France. France is independent and France is a member of the European Union and the French have got huge antagonism between the so-called gilets jaunes and the, uh, and the authorities precisely because there's lots and lots of things that an independent France can't do uh, to avoid people being unhappy. And there's lots of unhappiness caused by the things that an independent France thinks it has to do. So Brown accepts the SNP's um, suppressed premise, which is that um, government is potent and government is, in the case of the UK, malignant or incompetent. And in Scotland, a potent government that wasn't malignant and wasn't incompetent would make their lives much better. And all of that, as I say, is accepted as, um, as established fact when you do as Brown does and suggest this vast new constitutional settlement is going to solve the problem. It's extremely likely that whatever settlement you bring in, um, you're going to find yourself in exactly the same problem because you're going to be faced with an SNP opponent that says there continue to be imperfections and these imperfections are caused by your unwillingness to do what an independent Scotland could easily do. So the SNP's argument um, is, is the argument of a, of a religious believer um, who says all, all will be revealed once you're in heaven. There's no way, we don't, you can only visit heaven once, you can only die once. So there's no way you'll ever find out whether the, uh, the picture that's painted of heaven is, uh, is an accurate one or not. So that, I think, is the first mistake. He, he concedes too much ground to the independence movement by suggesting that political change would remove the grievances that they have. The grievance that they have is that the world isn't perfect. And the suppressed premise of the grievance says that the world can be made perfect or nearly perfect by government. Uh, and uh, that just isn't the case. He also says, um, as, as I hinted before, that um, the nations are to have their say and the, and the regions are to have their say to the government of the UK. Therefore, you instantly separate the nations and the regions from the government of the UK. Um, so the champions, the, the barons or the feudal lords, or the, at the very best, the representatives of the people, um, will be, they'll, they'll represent the people in the fractions that Brown envisages, Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, the North East, the North West. So they'll represent, to a completely separate body, the needs of the people in those areas. Now, why would I, as a Scot who's socially liberal and economically liberal, be better represented by somebody uh, in Scotland who then goes and tries to represent my views and everybody else's views um, to a, a UK government. Why would I be in a better position than if I actually had a proper functioning government at Westminster? Because um, it's not clear to me that uh, the idea um, that the Scots are, are, are sociologically or attitudinally distinct from the English, it's not clear to me that that's borne out by the actual evidence. What is distinct is that the Scots have been allowed, and this leads me back to my first point, the Scots have been allowed to believe that um, in the world, that in the best of all possible worlds, uh, all evils could be uh, either eliminated or very much reduced. So, for example, the hard choices we have to make about the welfare state. Do we want to say that somebody who is claiming welfare can have as many kids as they like? Now, in a, in a Scotland stuck in, the, if, you, if you like, in the United Kingdom, and the United Kingdom having to draft a welfare policy, to try and cap the 300 billion, the nearly 300 billion we spend on pensions and welfare. In that United Kingdom, you have to have a discussion about family size and whether, and you might well decide that you don't want to cap family size and, and, and families claiming welfare, but you have to have that discussion. It has to be a serious discussion. You have to have a serious discussion about the triple lock on pensions and whether pensions should rise 
by the highest of inflation, 2% or average wages, because that kind of up upward ratchet really begins to cost a lot of money after a period of time. Now, in a, in a country that actually settles all its own bills, you have to have those serious discussions. In a part of a country where you've already persuaded the people that um, come a change in the constitutional relationships and come independence, these hard decisions would be made in a way that would please everybody all the time or very nearly. In that country, a champion from Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland or the North of England, it seems to me, could easily be the representative of exactly the same unreasoning aggression, posturing uh, and, uh, and nonsense that we currently get. So the, 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 the Nicola Sturgeon thinks we can quantitatively ease somebody else's currency. Now, Andrew Neil in the news, newspaper this morning, I, I think Gordon Brown also as well, uh, were, uh, were suggesting that Nicola Sturgeon doesn't know what she's talking about in these big areas. And after the amount of time that she's had to think through the implications in, in these policy areas, she should be the master of them, but she's not. And there's a reason for that. And it is you don't have to be the master if you're just unhappy. Being unhappy is, is enough in itself. Um, if you want to actually condemn somebody else who's got an obligation to make you happy, all you have to do is say you're unhappy. Like a diner in a restaurant, you don't have to be able to cook. You just have to say, I didn't enjoy that. And as soon as you say you didn't enjoy that, the waiter and the chef are in a difficult position. So the, at the moment, Nicola Sturgeon and indeed others in the, in the UK are able to say, I just didn't enjoy that. I don't think you did a good job. And until you've got responsibility for all of the hard decisions that have to be made, then a complaint from somebody who doesn't have to make those hard decisions um, is impossible to deal with. So to say that, uh, the, now the great Thomas Hobbes again, Hobbes said that what makes a, a state is not the unity of the represented, it is the unity of the representor. In other words, Britain becomes Britain when there's a sovereign parliament that can represent the British. And the British don't exist until they're represented by a sovereign parliament. Now, Brown's vision of lots and lots of um, what amount to fiefdoms representing the people in those fiefdoms uniquely or nearly uniquely to the, the, the central government. That's a, that's a vision essentially of uh, lots of independent states who've got a right to complain to somebody who's got an obligation to distribute resources to remove unhappiness. Because that's, that's what it amounts to. It amounts to somebody taking the resources of Londinium and being continually harassed by their, uh, their demanding sons and daughters for more handouts. That's what it amounts to. Um, Brown doesn't see it in those terms uh, because he likes to use uh, romantic uh, language to, to elide over what are the facts. And the facts of our existence are that uh, the, every single part of the UK, um, apart from London, the South East, has got a fiscal deficit. Scotland is not unique in that. The North of England is in the same kind of position as Scotland. The Scottish economy performs about as well as the North of England. To believe that the Scottish economy is fatally undermined by Westminster policies that are aimed at London and the South East is to believe that the bulk of the English population that lives outside of the London and the South East is too stupid to understand that they're being hamstrung by policies. You have to, in order to believe the SNP's pitch that Scotland has been uniquely hurt by um, the, uh, the London policies that are favouring the city of London and so on, to believe that you have to believe that the, the folk in England who are not living in London are unable to see um, what's happening or they're unable to be informed and exploited by a party that can see. You have to believe the Labour Party is so inept it can't actually spell out that policies favour London and harm um, Hartlepool. Now, a moment's hesitation, a moment's thought tells you that can't be true. 
the reality of the situation is that uh, London and the South East um, are successful, not because the rules are biased in their favour, but because the Industrial Revolution was biased in our favour. Um, the reason why London is, a, is the world's capital is because we were the world's leading country for long enough, so we had a first mover advantage. So the reason why this, we did this distribution across the UK from London has got nothing to do with London's advantage that's produced by biased rules within the UK. That wouldn't explain it anyway, would it? Because that wouldn't explain why London can outcompete Frankfurt and Paris. The thing that explains London and the South East dominance is the history of the UK. Um, and these vast transfers that take place across the country to the benefit of all of the parts of the country um, are uh, vital to the provision of services outside of London and the South East. So the idea that Brown has that the relationship that exists between a Glaswegian and uh, the government in, in, in Westminster, the idea that that should be a relationship mediated through uh, a Nicholas Sturgeon figure or someone similar, and that that process can be spread across the whole of the UK and create a happy country, I don't see how it possibly could. Uh, I don't see how having regional champions like that who've got no responsibility for the overall situation and got every incentive to claim that the, the, the harms and and shortages that people feel in their lives um, are the result of bad decision-making and, and wickedness in the part of uh, the, the national government. It would seem to me that all you, all you do is you spread the problem. Um, if we have a responsive, proper, constituted government that people feel actually represents the whole of the country, if we actually have a constitutional change that stops the dominance of a Tory party with a majority of 80 on less than three votes in 10, if we have a government that everyone can recognise as an actual expression of the ideological commitments and, and policy beliefs of the, of the population, we would then, and that government responsive, we would then know that what's left over in terms of residual unhappiness is just the way it is. It's just the consequence of our lives. It's just how difficult the world is as a competitive place. It's just a, a, an inevitable uh, thing that we have to face because we, we can't fly um, or, uh, or produce Tesla cars um, from, from nothing. All the life, life is difficult. As soon as we have a situation where we, we, we paint ourselves in a corner and we say that politicians are wicked, that they are the source of our evils because of the things that they do or the things they fail to do uh, and could easily be done, as soon as we do that, we set ourselves up for this grievance politics that will rip the country apart. So when Brown says we're going to have a continuation of uh, a Scottish government as a Scottish champion, and that's going to spread across the whole of the UK, including the north of England. And we're then going to have a UK government that serves as, a, as an arbiter or provider of, uh, of central resources. That seems to me to be nothing more than an invitation for a continuation of the grievance politics, the unaccountable grievance politics that we've got right now. So that, that seems to me a flawed prospectus. Um, when he talks about mobilising our shared resources, now that's the kind of expression that looks as if it's meaningful. You mobilise our shared resources. Just pause for a second and ask yourself whether you really understand what that means, whether it actually makes sense. It looks meaningful. Because if you look at what it literally says, it says that these resources are shared and then they're mobilised. Now that would imply something like, for example, a safe with two sets of keys. So we, we both own whatever's in the safe, but we can't open it without each of us putting in our key. A bit of the key in a tried nuclear submarine, you, you need a number of keys to be turned at the same time before the, the sub can launch its missiles. So the missiles are a shared resource um, and you have to mobilise that shared resource. Now, is that really what's happening in the UK in terms of fiscal transfers? It doesn't seem to me to be a, a valid metaphor. Um, suppose we've got two different skill sets. 
mobilising our shared resources. So one player can score goals, but they can't play football without a goalkeeper and a centre-half and others. And therefore, the resources are really a kind of resource to play football, but we each got our own position. And therefore, we mobilise our shared resources when we form a team. Each of us contributing equally to the overall success of the team, but none of us able to play football um, unless we form a team or a band, maybe, guitarists and drummers. Is that what we mean by mobilising our shared resources? Well, that's nearer the mark. You know, the UK has got a big internal market, and therefore, if you have a, a decent-sized country, it's easier for companies to trade across it. So that might be a, a better way of thinking about mobilising our shared resources. But that ain't really um, what's doing it in the UK. Um, because the, the, the key fact in the UK is that mobilising our shared resources means having a political arrangement that allows um, the state to take money from London the southeast and redistribute it around the country to places that went through the hell of the collapse of heavy industry and are still recovering. People talk about Scotland, they compare it to Norway. They forget, of course, that Norway was never an industrial power in the way that Scotland was, and that Norway discovered bigger oil fields and gas fields when prices were higher, easier to exploit fields when prices were higher, and they gambled by having their own state oil company, which any accountant or economist would have told you was a bad idea. You don't want to double down on your exposure to oil prices, but they did, and they got away with it. Sometimes you do win lottery tickets. Lottery tickets are winning. So, sometimes, but not, but they're generally not a good idea. What the Norwegians did was not a good idea, but they got away with it. So, when, when you talk about mobilising our shared resources, it sounds as if it means something, but it doesn't actually mean very much at all. Um, and it's it's it might be useful as a political campaigning technique, um, but we, we I think there'd be much more to be gained from making people aware uh, of the fact that Scotland performs about as well uh, economically as the north of England, and we just simply get £2,000 more per head to spend. Um, and that's the, that's the raw fact at the centre of our existence. So that's my, my first grievance, or second grievance, about, um, but the two are related, about the way that Brown chooses to characterise um, the, uh, the situation. My third um, grievance, and again, or criticism, and again it's related to uh, how he characterises the situation. He talks about Scotland and the UK working together, as if there was a UK that didn't include Scotland. And he talks about Scotland as if, in actual fact, it still exists as a, as a political entity that could, in principle, leave a thing called the UK. The Scotland that could conceivably join and create a UK um, disappeared in 1707, and so did the England. Great Britain was created. There can be a political Scotland, Scotland can be a state, but that state will be created by the, the state that is right now, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The idea that there's a, that there's a Scotland right now and that the union is taking place right now because we will the union and we can essentially terminate on 90 days notice on either side like a lease, that's not what's going on. The way to think about the situation right now is not two restaurants that cooperate in advertising and marketing. This is a situation where two restaurants were knocked together and made one big restaurant and that it's been running for 300 years. There isn't a Scotland and an England and a Wales that forms um, Great Britain. There's a, a, a Scotland uh, before 1707 that was a state, and an England before 1707 and Wales, and, uh, and they joined together to create Great Britain. So when Gordon Brown paints the, the, the picture of a United Kingdom that's got a, a Scotland that's um, cooperating with that United Kingdom, because that's what he says, he talks about Scotland can work with um, the United Kingdom, 
Uh, and that just isn't what we've got. What we've got is a, is a Great Britain that was created in 1707, long before, 100 years before, more than 100 years before most of the major European states. So union isn't what we can persist in. Union is what happened historically. Union happened in 1707. He talks about the electorate's view, and he puts the apostrophe after the S. Um, so all these different electorates, a number of different electorates in the UK, in the UK and it's the job of the, uh, the the champions of these electorates to represent their views to the central government. That isn't what we've got. What we've got is one united kingdom and the relationship that fundamentally exists is between the citizen and the sovereign parliament. My relationship is as a British subject. Uh, subject, and that's that's another thing that we need to clarify. When you talk about someone being a British subject or a British citizen, the two have become synonymous. Hobbes again clarified it. If you're a Spartan and you get into the Spartan Assembly and pass the laws, um, when you leave the Spartan Assembly, you're fully subject to those laws. Those laws are binding on you despite the fact that you made them. So the thing that makes you uh, a subject is simply being uh, that regulated by law in the way that everyone else in the sovereign territory is regulated by law. And it doesn't actually matter whether you're the person that makes it. In order to have any kind of common life at all, everybody has to be regulated by law. So... I'm subject to the laws made in Westminster. Uh, Westminster is sovereign. Any laws that are made in Scotland for application within uh, Scotland are only made uh, on the letting uh, and, and permission of the Westminster government because there is one Great Britain. The Scottish Parliament was not reconvened in 1999. That, that, that should have been next right at the start. There was no reconvening. The Scottish Parliament had not uh, stopped in 1707 and been reconvened in, uh, in 1999, what was being created was an assembly that would have devolved powers. And as Enoch Powell said, and of course, anyone will tell you, don't quote Enoch Powell. Well, no, uh, uh, that's a, a fallacy again. Enoch Powell said, power devolved is power retained. And he's absolutely right. Um, devolution means the retention of power. It doesn't mean the getting away permanently. So there aren't um, two um, countries, one called Scotland, one called England, or one called Scotland, one called the UK, and uh, they're going to work together. There's only Great Britain and Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom. One of the issues that occurs to me is that a Scottish ethnic identity and an English ethnic identity um, are both real and vibrant, and I'm a Scot, and a British ethnic identity is real as well, uh, and you instinctively feel British as well as Scottish, just as you feel Glaswegian or Clyholer and European and lots of other things. Now, Britishness is unusual because it's very much um, bureaucratic and procedural before it is romantic and ethnic. Um, it, it, Britishness grew as the interconnections between the, the constituent parts grew and as our history unfolded as a British people. And the British ethnic identity um, is parasitic on a wise uh, decision to create political arrangements in 1707 and before that with the crowns in 1603. So what happened was there was an English identity, a Scottish identity, and then there was an evolving British identity. And one of the things that happens is the British identity is, um, as I say, uh, a consequence of pragmatism. And therefore, Britishness is a sparse identity because it essentially amounts to you know big commitments to toleration and the rule of law and parliamentary sovereignty. And it's... Uh, Although there is a genuine British identity, it comes after the Scottish and the English one, and it's thinner in terms of what's peculiar to it. 
In other words, if you if you take somebody, I think a good example, if you take somebody um, like Philip Larkin, he's very English. If you take someone like Alistair Gray, he's very Scottish. Um, if you if you try to think of somebody who's very British, um, you struggle a little bit because uh, you, you, end, you end up, um, I'm just trying to think of uh, some British Asian author maybe, um, um, Glenn Duncan or someone. Maybe you can think of someone who is, is a great um, stylist in English literature, but has got a more um, complex background. Uh, and you think, well, that's, that's, a, that's a British author. But, but Britishness is, is thinner um, culturally than Scottishness or English, Englishness, because Britishness began in a pragmatic politics and then created afterwards a, a thinner ethnic identity that sits alongside the others. And one of the things that happens is then is that people look at the thinner British ethnic identity or the later British ethnic identity and they say, well, look, it doesn't stand comparison to the deeper, longer Scottish identity and therefore we need a Scottish state. If you stop and think about it, the SNP's argument for all the talk of civic nationalism is much more primitive and much more late 19th, early 20th century than they would admit. Because it's really a belief that there has to be a, 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 a state to, to contain a nation. So nations need to, have, need to be states. Uh, and that therefore, because the Scots have got a deep national identity, there has to be a state that fits with that national identity. And you compare, and, and, as I said a, a little while ago, Brown says when you ask Scots whether they're essentially British or, uh, or Scottish, they'll say they're Scottish. And that's true because they are essentially Scottish. But that's not because um, Britishness is um, an inapt um, ethnic identity, nor is it the case that Britain is a bad political arrangement. It's that Britain was 1707 forward uh, and arrived later and is mainly about pragmatic things. And because of that, although there's a genuine attachment to the British state and a genuine British ethnic identity, it's never going to be quite the same thing as a Scottish or an English identity. And to, to move from that truth to the falsehood, which is there has to be a state that sits over the top of the Scottish ethnic identity, is one of the big mistakes that people make. They're asked the question, are you British or Scottish? And when they answer they're fundamentally Scottish, they are then invited to conclude that there should be a Scottish state. Because how could you possibly be a proper Scot unless you believe that Scotland should have its own government? Well, because I'm a proper Scot for a whole range of reasons. Um, deep in my identity. And politics is about sewers and roads and similar things. Um, polit politics is, is about um, the kind of things that can't be done by the individual uh, because you've got a free rider problem. And if, you, if we all paid for them, some people wouldn't pay. That's what politics is. Um, the, uh, the, the army that mobilises on the basis of, uh, of, of sentiment um, does so uh, because the, uh, the, the people are, are wedded to the, the idea that they can trust their neighbours. Uh, so if, if we were the kind of people that couldn't trust our neighbours, if we were threatened with invasion by those who would maybe annihilate us, then the, our sense of, of community and self would be, would be really powerful and, and important in defending ourselves. Hegel said this about America. America is not really a, a proper state. It's, a, it's a, a commonwealth of some sort where people are joining together temporarily in order to try and enrich themselves. But the, the agreement is so thin, it's not clear they could actually defend themselves. So I think um, it, would, it would be hard to have a state that was in a, in a world of aggressive states where people didn't have some kind of trust in others that was greater than the trust they had in strangers. So I think that's true. Uh, and I think it's possibly true that the Scots trust each other more than they would trust people across the whole island. But even stating it now, I'm not sure that's true. The Scots have got a deep ethnic identity, but that doesn't mean they've got a deep ethnic affinity. 
Uh, I'm not sure that uh, I would trust every other Scot uh, when push came to shove more than I would trust um, the average weighted average of, of English folk. I'd have to stop and think about it. But as I say, our, our, our identity, our ethnic identity, is very strong. And I think a state probably needs people to have a sympathy for each other such that they would favour the others um, if, if they were threatened. And you have to believe that people prefer the, the folk uh, in, in their state because they're asked to make sacrifices for them. David Goodhart got himself into a lot of trouble by pointing out this, pointing out that liberals have got a great conflict at the heart of their political theory because they want to believe in open borders and movement, but at the same time they want to believe in large transfer payments, and the two are inconsistent. If anybody in the world can come here, then it's likely, well, first of all, financially, it's just not going to be possible, but secondly, it's likely you'll find yourself having less sympathy for them because they're less like you. Um, people tend to be more prepared to suffer sacrifices for those that, that they identify with. So, as I say, I think Brown um, makes a mistake um, when he, when he suggests that there's a, a Scotland that continues and it should have relationships with the UK. That's not what we're talking about. Um, and uh, we need to recognise, as I say, that, um, that the, the British state was created and that a British identity was created and that the Scottish identity and English identity continue to exist. But it's a mistake to think that because they do and are deeper than the, uh, the rival British identity, then that's an argument in and of itself for a British state, for a, for a Scottish state, and, and, and by the implication in our UK, a residual UK, um, because the, uh, the, the Scottish identity um, isn't necessarily going to produce a healthier politics. And the fact that it's an identity doesn't necessarily make it um, better. Um, in the modern world, threatened less by rival states, it doesn't necessarily make it um, a better basis for a, for a state. Um, and uh, just to conclude, uh, the... Uh, the business about um, the uh, spending directly, this muscular unionism. The the thing that strikes me about this is we already, in a normal year before COVID, are looking at a fifteen thousand million pound fiscal deficit. In other words, we we spend fifteen thousand million pounds more than we can raise in taxation in Scotland. We do well out of the union. If the if Boris Johnson and the UK government think that they can actually um, love bomb Scotland with additional funding and not change anything else, then by implication, the fiscal deficit increases. And one of the things that I worry about is the extent to which the English are going to be a bit fed up with this. Because they are fellow Britons, and they've consented to be bound by decisions taken across the whole of the UK. Nicola Sturgeon was explicit in 2016 that this was a whole UK vote, for example, to leave or remain in the EU. And she said that Scots must vote to remain because their votes could be the difference. England, considered separately, might vote to leave, but the whole country is voting together, and therefore the constituency is the UK, and therefore the Scots could keep the English in the EU, even if um, England, considered separately, voted leave. Now, in the event, of course, it went the other way. And to claim then that uh, there was an independent Scotland that was voting separately and that were now being dragged out of the Union, neatly forgetting it was a whole UK vote and also neatly forgetting that lots and lots of Scots voted to remain in the EU if and only if Scotland remained in the UK. So this kind of dishonest politics um, is very provocative for your fellow citizens. And one of the things that strikes me is, as I say, the, the attempt to... to, the, the attempt to <laughs> I hesitate to use the word, but I'm going to use it. The attempt to bribe the Scots into a continuation of the Union 
um, through, for example, sums of money spent directly by the Westminster government in Scotland over and above what would be spent elsewhere, uh, notwithstanding that you're making this big commitment um, to welfare and pensions every year of £20 billion directly paid to the pensioners and the, and the welfare recipients, and then another 45 or so billion paid to the Scottish Parliament. The idea that you should spend money over the top of the Scottish Parliament, um, leaving to one side whether that's provocative uh, to the Scots, because the Scottish Parliament would like to have its hands in the money, leaving that to one side, what does it do to folk in the north of England who are expecting this levelling up agenda to apply and expecting the government to do something to help them? And they see that Scotland's not only receiving huge sums of money um, presently through the Barnet formula, but they're going to have another load of money spent as well, uh, parallel to the Scottish Parliament spending, all designed to try and keep them in the union. Um, there's a limit to how much they could reasonably be expected to tolerate. So that, as I say, is a bit of a concern as well. Arguably, what Gordon Brown is doing is he's doubling down on uh, his earlier mistakes. He thought um, that George Robertson was right and that others would, were right in the Labour movement, Donald Dewar and so on, um, that uh, a Scottish Parliament would kill nationalism stone dead, in the words, I think, of Robertson. Um, so once you had a Scottish Parliament, um, it would satisfy the, the Scots. Um, why that was thought for even a nanosecond to be possible, I'll never know. Scotland was angry about Thatcher's industrial policy and economic policy. How on earth you can possibly address that by devolving health, education and law and order is beyond me. It doesn't make any kind of sense at all. And what it actually has done, of course, is provide a platform for the SNP, who are now in a position to say, um, if we become independent, then we'll be um, much better off. And every single fact tells against that. And yet, for some reason, we're not able to make any of those facts stick. And the reason why we arguably can't make the facts stick is because people like Gordon Brown have contrived a situation where um, all of the theatre is in, the, is in the, the side of the nationalists. When you create a parliament, I mean, we discovered that in 2021 in the elections, the, the Scottish handling of the COVID crisis was poor. Um, the number of deaths in the care homes was horrifically high, much higher than in England. The overall number of deaths was much higher than it should have been, given that we don't have a hub airport like Heathrow, um, and given that we've got a smaller number of black and minority ethnic folk. So the, the actual pandemic handling was dreadful, but Nicola Sturgeon stood at a lectern and sounded plausible every day, and that theatre mattered more. And uh, what Brown offers to do with his solution is more theatre. What we need is not an increase in the powers of the Scottish Parliament or indeed an increase in the spending in Scotland. What we need is uh, a great British government that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't depend on a minority whether in Scotland or England or anywhere else, it doesn't depend on a minority for autocratic power. Uh, we need to recognise that government that is messier and more accountable and in some ways less predictable. The, 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 the doctrine of the manifesto, the idea of the mandate has to be ended as well. And if we can't think with a greater degree of subtlety about our problems and what would make a healthy state in what is, after all, a very small island, if we can't create one state in a, in a small island that's capable of being representative of a people who are largely united in terms of the beliefs. If we can't do that, then uh, hell will mend us. And when I say hell will mend us, I don't mean the British. I mean the Scots. Peace.